Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. Of all the privileges that I've had, speaking in chapels like this has always been one of my favorites. The stories that were told earlier about the senior girls coming in all shapes and sizes reminds me of my freshman year at Taylor University. Some guys snuck into the print shop and on the daily announcements that were on every table of the cafeteria, they printed, do you know what the difference between the girls at Taylor and an elephant is? The answer, somewhere between three and four pounds. The next day, the girls snuck in the print shop and said, did you hear about the man-eating tiger that was let loose on our campus? He starved to death. Well, I'm thankful to be with you. My wife was able to make the trip, and I'd like to introduce her. This is my wife, Kathy. Would you stand, honey? With a senior banquet or a school-wide banquet coming up, I just wanted you guys down front to know she's taken. Don't ask her. I've been asked to come and to speak to you about spiritual warfare. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Sometimes when we talk about spiritual warfare, we think of that unique situation where Satan is attacking in a rather dramatic way. Maybe something as extreme as demon possession, which is certainly real. But sometimes we fail to realize that Satan's attacks and the war can be far more subtle. As a matter of fact, they can be in this very auditorium. I doubt that if Satan were driving a car down the freeway, and he began to approach this campus that he would say, Oh, the Master's College. I'll stay away from there. Indeed, he probably says, Oh, the Master's College. There's some people for me to go after. I believe that spiritual warfare is real, but many of us will want to blow off this whole subject. Let me just ask you to apply everything the scriptures has to say about spiritual warfare. It's always good to listen, particularly when God's word is being shared. But it's always good to pay attention and to listen. Back in the Midwest, going to Florida is one of the favorite things to do at springtime. This couple were on their way from Michigan down to Florida and they stopped to get gas. The wife never listened to the conversation. The husband said to the attendant, would you fill her up, please? He said, sure, I'd be glad to. Where are you headed to, sir? The driver said, we're going to Florida. He went back to fill up the tank, and the wife said to the husband, what did he say? He asked where we're going, and I told him Florida. The gas station attendant came back up with the car, and he said to the man driving the car, how soon are you going to get there? The man said, oh, about another day, day and a half. The attendant laughed, and the wife said, what did he say? He said that uh, he wanted to know how long it was going to take for us to get there, and I told him a day and a half. Well, the attendant came back, and he said, I saw your uh, license plate. You're from Michigan. He said, yeah. He said, the attendant said, I, I used to live up in Detroit. When I was in Detroit, we had this neighbor lady. She was the meanest, nastiest old bat you would ever want to meet in your life. And the wife said to her husband, what did he say? The husband said, he thinks he met you once in Detroit. You live next door to him. <laughs> it always pays to listen. If you have your Bible, please open it to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
And please hear what God challenges each of us to do and to be. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life so that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. God is calling every one of us to be his soldiers, to be his men and women in the foxhole like Wiley and Todd fighting in the real war. Unfortunately, many of us don't realize there is a real war to be fought. During the early days of the Civil War, the North was so confident of their military superiority that they literally laughed at the Army of the South. And during one of the very first battles that we call the Battle of Bull Run, it was announced literally in the paper that there was going to be a battle outside of Washington, D.C., and the Union Army proudly paraded their way through the streets of Washington, heading down into the valley to meet the Southern Army. Confidence was so high, people thought, this isn't a war. This is no big deal. We'll whip the rebels in one battle and the whole thing will be over. This is no war. And so the ladies of Washington, D.C. literally got in their carriages, packed a picnic lunch, went out to the hillside, right by the battle, spread out their tablecloth, got out their picnic to watch this little skirmish. Because after all, it wasn't really a war. The Confederate Army not only surprised the Union Army, but it overwhelmed them and drove them and the ladies with picnic baskets flying running back to the streets of Washington, D.C. And it wasn't until the city limits that the North repelled the Southern attackers. It was a real war. But they underestimated their enemy. And they underestimated the seriousness of the battle. And I'm finding that all of us as Christians are so committed to being comfortable and we're so aloof to the reality of spiritual warfare that we're walking around life with our picnic baskets, not realizing there is a real war. Others of us recognize there's a real war, but we feel like we can somehow escape it. We don't have to become involved. That was somewhat of the mentality of the United States. World War I had passed and we never wanted to see a war again. Woodrow Wilson called it a war to end all wars. There would be no more wars for America. But World War II was exploding all around us as a nation. But we continually said, the war is out there and we don't have to be in it. Until one day... As Roosevelt called us, a day that will live on in infamy. December the 7th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was attacked. And it taught us this important lesson. If you don't want to go to the front and fight, just wait. The front will come to you. And if you and I are not prepared today to engage in spiritual warfare, if we're trying to stay away from the front, just wait. 
the front will come to you. Spiritual warfare takes place on two completely different battlefields. There's an internal battlefield that you and I must wage combat with in our lives every day. It's the internal battle against self and sin. There's a constant struggle inside. One man put it this way. Speaking of the fact that the Spirit of God lived in him, but the old nature was still there, he said, two natures beat within my chest. The one is cursed, the other is blessed. The one I love, the other I hate. And the one I feed will dominate. You and I are in a battle every day of our lives with ourself. Between the Spirit of God that's been put in us by the new birth and the old Spirit that was put in us by the natural birth. That's one battlefield. There's a second battlefield that is not internal, but it's external. It's the battlefield that Jesus called a field ripened to harvest. A battlefield where every day people are being won or lost for eternity. I was so impressed just a moment ago. We were taking a brief tour of the campus and I saw a brochure and it said, We train men as though lives depend on it. Lives obviously do depend on it. Christianity Today printed these alarming statistics. In the next five years, it is estimated that 20,000 career missionaries will be retiring because of age. And in the next five years, as those 20,000 retire, best projections show that there will only be 5,000 new recruits to replace them. We're losing foot soldiers on the front lines by a ratio of four to one. Spiritual warfare is going on around us and in us every moment of every day. Some of us are engaged. Others of us have tried to ignore it, to be apathetic, to remain ignorant. A man took a survey one day and he was going door to door asking the question. He said, what do you think the greatest problem in America is? Ignorance or apathy? first house he knocked on, he asked that question. He said, sir, what do you think the greatest problem in America is? Ignorance or apathy? And the man said, I don't know. Quite frankly, I don't care. And shut the door. You know, many of us as Christians are, are content to stay ignorant of our responsibilities to be good soldiers because we're apathetic. We don't know about it and we don't care. Well, in nearly every war, there are at least these four different groups. First of all, there's an enemy. And in 2 Timothy, a few verses later, the enemy is identified for us in verse 26. It says that they might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Obviously, the enemy is real. He is personal. He is not just personified. He is personal. We know him well. 
The scriptures demand of us to not be ignorant of his abilities, of his schemes, of his deceptive means. He is the enemy. Obviously, there's a second group. Those are the soldiers of Christ, what you and I are called to be. Then there's a third group of people that are identified in verse 26. It says, those who are being held captive by Satan. There are usually hostages, captives, POWs in any war. In this spiritual war, the POWs are those people who do not know Christ as Savior. One of the mistakes I think we often make is we think of the person who is an unbeliever as the enemy. That person is not the enemy. They're the victims of the enemy. We often think of the person who is wasting their life through a constant pursuit of pleasure at the expense of principle as the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're the victim of the enemy. They're the ones being held captive by Satan and sin. They're bound. And Jesus said in his first message in Luke chapter 4, I've come to proclaim the good tidings and to set the captives free. Three groups. The enemy, which is Satan. The soldiers, which you and I are called to be. The captives, whom we're fighting to release. And then tragically, this fourth group, found in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10. In verse 9, Paul said to Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed. Unfortunately, there is a fourth group whom we will call the defectors. In this war, the largest group of people are the captives. But the fastest growing group are the defectors. Those of us who have been called as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, who have abdicated who have retreated, who've withdrawn and refused to fight on either of the two fronts. Internally against self and sin, externally against Satan to release the captives. In Second Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 and 4, I believe there are at least these four qualities of a good soldier that I want for my life and for yours. The first quality I believe of a good soldier is this. A good soldier is under authority. That's the meaning of being a soldier. It's someone under authority. In Matthew chapter 9, a centurion came to Jesus saying, My servant is sick. Would you heal him? And Jesus offered to go to that centurion's house. And the centurion said, No, Lord, you don't need to come to my house. 
The centurion said, I'm a man under authority, having men under me. And if I say to this one, go, he goes. And if I say to that one, come, he comes. That's a description of a soldier. Someone who, when they're told to go, goes. Someone who, when they're commanded to come, comes. A good soldier is always under authority. In 1972, the Vietnam War was not yet coming to an end. The draft was still taking place, and I was drafted. Now, the end of the story is I failed the physical, which is somewhat embarrassing. But let me tell you about my long military career of two hours. When you get drafted, the first thing you do is you go to a physical. And I was amazed at the rudeness of the sergeant. Why, do you know, he never once said, please. And when we did what he asked us to, he never once said, thank you. I mean, he just bossed us around. Actually, it was one of the most humiliating situations in life. First of all, they take everything away but your underwear. So here's all these guys standing in line in their underwear. Sergeant walking up and down. And on the floor, there's all kinds of tape. There's a, a blue string of tape and a green string of tape and a yellow string of tape. And the sergeant will walk up and he'll just say, follow the blue line till the blue line stops. Put your feet on the blue feet the way the blue feet go. And all of a sudden, all these guys in their skivvies go, you know, and they find the feet and they get their toes just right and you just stand there. And all day long, somebody is yelling at you, barking out orders. And you know what? He always did it. Every time. Why? We were under their authority. Now, we weren't inducted yet, but we had two reasons to stay under their authority. First of all, they were our only ride home. Secondly, they had all of our clothes. <laughs> we were under their authority, whether we liked it or not. And isn't that really the nature of the internal battle that we fight? Every day to decide to put ourselves under the authority of the headship of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's the real first battle that we'll fight every day in spiritual warfare. And that is, who is going to sit on the throne of the kingdom of my life? Am I going to take it back and depose Christ? Or today will I again submit to the headship of Christ in my life. That is the central issue of spiritual warfare, being under authority. A man by the name of William Henley in his poem in Wectus put it this way. He said, I care not how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Defiantly saying, no one, nothing will be in authority over me. As a good soldier of Christ, our first battle is to place ourselves under his authority. You see, the whole fall of Satan was over the fact that he was not willing to keep himself under the authority of God. Isaiah tells us the story that five times in five poetic expressions, Satan said, I will, I will, I will be like the Most High. He was saying, I'll be the God around here. 
I don't want God to be the authority over me. I'll be the authority in my own life. And that was the exact temptation that he turned around and gave to Eve. He said to Eve, just eat this fruit. Eve said, God said, we're not to eat it. He said, you eat it. Because the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You'll have all the knowledge you need and you will be like God. You'll be the authority. You'll no longer have to put yourself under the authority of God. Just eat this fruit. And now all of humanity is plagued with that internal alteration of our divine image that we no longer want to be under the authority of anyone else but ourselves. A good soldier is always under authority. Second quality of a good soldier is this. It says, as a good soldier, endure hardships. Endure hardships. If you are in the military, you are a part of a fighting unit. People who go through boot camp and extensive training because of the physical and emotional demandingness of their life. I'm all for the four spiritual laws. This is not meant to be a criticism at all. But in the four spiritual laws, the first law is this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And most of us want our spiritual life to stop right there. God loves me and he has a wonderful plan for my life and I want to experience this wonderfulness. And we begin to measure the value of our spiritual walk with God based upon how wonderful it is. How comfortable it is. How pleasing it is. How pleasure oriented it is. And as a soldier, we're not called to live by the ethic of our appetites and to seek only pleasure. We are to be ready and willing to endure hardships. One of the first hardships a soldier would encounter would be separation from family and friends. Jesus called some people to follow him and they said to him, uh, We can't go. I first must bury my father. Now it wasn't that the man's father had died and the funeral was in an hour. Because Jewish people buried their dead on the day that they died. This man was saying, uh, let me stick around and enjoy the rest of my father's life with him. And after that relationship is over with, sure, I'll look you up then, Jesus. As a good soldier, sometimes it calls us to be separated from family and friends for the purpose of serving him. A second hardship that a soldier will go through is a loss of other vocational experiences. You see, once you join the military, you can't be back at home running the family business, advancing your career, taking more training, becoming the professional that you would choose to be. It's a life that is surrendered to the army to achieve its purposes. Jesus said, come and follow me for my purposes. I'll make you fishers of men. Peter wanted to say, man, I've got nets. I've got a boat. I've got a business to run here. And Christ said, follow me. It was a hardship for Peter to leave a family business. For James and John to live 
a life apart from their father. They were to give up that vocation. It was a hardship. Another hardship that they were to go through would be the hardship of discipline. A soldier lives an extremely disciplined life. There's nothing done casually in the military. From the way you shine your shoes to the way you shoot your weapon, there's not anything that is casual. Kind of do it your own way. In case you hadn't noticed, the, the army's not into individualism. They're not into designer clothing. Gucci packs. I mean, it's just not happening. But they are into discipline. And the Bible constantly calls us, if we're going to be soldiers of Christ, we've got to live a disciplined life. There's a coach back in Indiana by the name of Bobby Knight. Um, there's not much Bobby Knight says that you can quote in Christian circles. But let me give you this edited version of what Bobby Knight once said about discipline. He said, discipline is composed of four things. Discipline is doing what needs to be done. Not doing what you like to do, not doing what you want to do, but discipline is doing what needs to be done. Secondly, discipline is doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Not tomorrow, not after I'm done having fun, not later on, but when it needs to be done. Thirdly, discipline is doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done, the best it can be done. Not, hey prof, I mean, how many cuts can we have and still pass? But taking the approach, not what's the minimum I have to give, but what's the most I can give. The best it can be done. And then Knight said, fourthly, discipline is doing what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, the best it can be done, and doing it that way every time. As a good soldier in Christ, we're called to suffer the hardship of a disciplined life. Another hardship that we must face as good soldiers is the hardship of danger. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, describes his life, and it sounds like a man off the FBI, 10 most wanted men list. Imprisoned in Philippi, stoned at Lystra, started a riot in Ephesus. He was a man who was given up for dead on more than one occasion. He was a man beaten 39 times. He wrote a book called Prisons I Visited in Southern Europe. I mean, this guy's life was one of danger. You know what? God expects us to risk something. To follow him. It may be something as emotional as the risk of losing a relationship. Some of us are right now are involved in relationships with friends that if we took this spiritual commitment that we said we wanted, we know we'd lose them because they would not retain us as their friends if we walked with conviction. That's a risk you'll have to take. Others of us may be called into a unique field of service where actually our physical lives will be risked. God expects us to be willing to take risks and to be exposed to danger. The final hardship I believe that we're to stand ready to endure 
is the hardship of death. The death, like Jim Elliot, who died on a riverbank, slain by the Aka Indians. But more than likely, we will not have to give up our life to die for Christ. We'll have to do something that may even be more difficult. That is to die to ourselves, to give up our life to live for Christ. I think for many of us, in a moment of emotional heroism, we could rise to the occasion, if so confronted, and stand for Christ, even in the face of physical death. But what is harder is to daily, to daily, die to ourselves. The Bible says, as good soldiers of Christ, that we must stand ready to endure hardship. On Friday, I'll share with you the final two qualities I have here of a good soldier. But allow me to close with this illustration. Probably not a true story, probably a fable, but one that has spoken to me quite clearly. The story is told that after a battle, Alexander the Great would personally review his troops. And then after reviewing his troops, he would then sit in judgment of those who were being held for cowardice in battle. The story is told that Alexander the Great sat upon his chair... And a man was brought in in front of him, and Alexander looked at him, and he said to him, With what crime are you charged? And the man said, I ran in battle. I was afraid. And Alexander motioned, and the man was taken out and put to death. Another man was brought in, and the same question was posed by the great general. And the answer was again that the man was a coward and he ran in battle. And the same gesture was made and Alexander sent him out to be put to death. And the third man was brought in, a, a relatively young man. Alexander looked at the young man and he said, Young man, with what crime are you charged? The young man said, Sir, I, I was afraid. And I ran in battle. General looked at the young man. He said, young man, what is your name? The young man humbly said, sir, my name too is Alexander. Alexander the Great first sat back in his chair, then stepped forward, grabbing the young man by the coat, pulled him face to face, and he said, Alexander, you either change your name or change your ways. God's called us to be good soldiers. And if we carry the name of Christian, and if we're not engaged in the warfare, then I fear that he's desperately saying to us, Christian, either change your name or change your ways.